If you've been with us for the past two weeks, you are, would be aware that we have been uh, trying to understand how to read, how to comprehend the book of Revelation. Very difficult, difficult text, to say the least, and actually impossible to understand unless you have a few keys that help you unlock it. And so we've been walking through ten keys that help us do just that. In doing so, we have discussed a number of very important subject matters found in the book of Revelation. We have talked about the events of the rapture. We've talked about the second coming of Christ, the judgment day of God. Last week, we talked about the millennium. This week, as we explore the final key of these ten, we are going to address that which is called the tribulation and that which is called antichrist. Tribulation and antichrist, two terms that many of you have been hearing. Some of you are coming as those very new to your investigation of spiritual things, and in doing so, the Bible is very foreign, and you've not even heard some of these terms. But you will find these to be very helpful because the Bible describes what we should expect to be taking place in these last days, and to understand that will be a benefit. Someone came up to me after the Saturday night service last night and uh, said, you know, my whole life has been changed. I, I really, and I think this person was not overstating by the way they, they communicated with me that their life has really been changed. He said, now I, I used to try to understand the issues of the last days, and I, I kind of looked at it out there, and now I'm kind of seeing it around me. It's kind of, that's a whole new perspective. Some of you may well be having that type of a, a new understanding because what I have been doing is trying to explain what I think the Bible teaches about these the last days in contrast with what we are hearing more often in what I call a popular and Western perspective on the last days. Let me walk through these, particularly for you that join us by way of introduction and for review to those who have been with us the past couple of weeks two major perspectives, and granted, there are variations of both of these, and I'm aware of those variations, and uh, there's no way we can cover them all, but this is giving you the, the broad perspective on these major views. One, the more modern perspective. If you're looking at your chart, it's one on the top. We start at the cross, and we have what's called the church age, and we all agree that far. But then... This teaching says that there is to be a rapture, meaning that Christians will be taken up to be with the Lord, the dead in Christ first, their bodies taken up, and then those of us alive and remaining, 1 Thessalonians 4, are taken up. Please don't be confused. We should all believe in the rapture. It's an issue of when does this rapture take place according to Scripture. So after the rapture, this view says now there's a seven-year period called the tribulation. It's a time that, among other things, as Christians have been taken up and are now left this earth, that some can come to faith in Christ during this time, but it's going to be very difficult because of the type of persecution that is going to exist under the leadership of one known as the Antichrist, the Antichrist. But at the end of that seven-year period comes what's called a second coming of Christ, where He comes and establishes his reign on this earth. And that reign established will be with us reigning with him 
literally on this earth, and most would assume the headquarters in Jerusalem where this reign is being led. Then at the end of that period comes what's called the judgment day. And this is where we read in the Bible on so many occasions where God judges those that oppose him. He gives gifts to those, crowns or blessings, to those who have been followers of him and have been faithful. Then after that time comes what's called the new heaven and the new earth. Now, in contrast to that, the perspective that has been held until 150 years ago as the the, uh, basic teaching of the church is that after the cross comes three things, all defining the very same time, the church age, we can call it. We can call it the tribulation. We can call it the millennium, all referring to the very same period of time stretching from the cross until each of these three events all taking place together, rapture, second coming, and judgment day take place. And from that point on, we have the new heaven and the new earth. And so there is the contrast between these two perspectives. Now, I suggest that the lower chart is the biblical approach, and we have been coming from that posture, though most of you have not been introduced to it, more than likely, because of the popularity of this, uh, of this more Western approach. But I'd like you just to be open-minded, and I'm going to say this now. I've said it before. What I'm teaching you as the appropriate understanding of the text of Scripture may not be accurate. I'm convinced that it is, but just because I believe it doesn't mean it's accurate. There are wonderful, godly, more intelligent, and more godly people than me who would hold different perspectives. And so certainly I would beg you never, never, never accept something because your pastor teaches it. And on the same hand, never accept something because good novels teach something otherwise. You look in the Word, find out what it has to say, and it's only good that you would see these two perspectives. You make the choice. You make the choice. With that, we look now at the tenth of our keys, number ten, the tribulation. It's a term used throughout Scripture to describe the hardship faced by Christ and His church from the first coming to the second coming of Christ and not a future seven-year period inclusive of an individual satanically empowered antichrist. Now, if you were to hold this position up here in this first chart, you would be assuming three things. One, you would be assuming that this thing called the tribulation is future yet to come from our perspective. Number two, you would hold that it's going to have a duration of seven years. And number three, you're going to expect that during that seven-year period, there's going to be a rise of an antichrist who is going to serve Satan in deceiving the world and so forth. Those would be the three assumptions. What I would like to do is to look at those three assumptions from Scripture and see where it takes us. And so the first of those is a future tribulation. I'll spend four-fifths of my time on this first of the three because once we settle this one, the other two begin to take shape very, very quickly. A future tribulation, my question would be, if you didn't have this chart or novels, or whatever it may be to teach you a particular system up here, and went straight to the Scripture, my question to you is, where would you find in Scripture that this tribulation should be future instead of present? That's the challenge that you have to do as a Bible student to go into the Scriptures and find it and bring out the truth. 
Where would you go? I would be hard-pressed to in any way try to prove such because I don't think you find that in Scripture, that it is a future tribulation. There are several reasons, though, why some would hold to the fact that it is a future tribulation, and it's through terms that are used. The word tribulation certainly is used to talk about tribulations that you and I have today, and, but there are a few exceptions where there is the article the placed in front of the word tribulation, and now it's making something very special, the tribulation, saying the tribulation. And so many would suggest that is a special time of tribulation, and it's something that is yet to come because it's saying the tribulation. Another term that is used that can be a bit confusing is on a couple of occasions you see the term the great tribulation. And some would say that's referring to not just the tribulations of today, but some very special tribulation. And that would be this future tribulation that has been proposed by a man named Darby who believed in the 18 mid-1800s, that he rediscovered this truth that had been missing from the church since the apostles' death. And he believed this was a rediscovery of a truth that was in Scripture that no one had known. Well, I think not. I think that really we should look at this and say, let's study these few texts and see what it really says. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, you have the use of the tribulation, and it's intriguing that this is the apostle John who is writing to begin with. And as John is writing this, he's doing so before the vision is given, which starts in chapter 4, and this is what he says. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. Notice it says, fellow partaker in the tribulation. Now, we know this, in this use of the tribulation, John felt that he was in it right now. He felt that all of his fellow laborers in the kingdom were in the tribulation. So certainly, we don't want to turn to the term the tribulation and assume it must refer to something future. Here, obviously, it is something that is present. The same word used for tribulation is found in John's gospel in chapter 16:33. These things I've spoken to you that... In me, you may have peace. In the world, you have tribulation. Tribulation. He says, but take courage. I've overcome the world. And his point is, yeah, you're in tribulation, but don't fear because you're in Christ and you have one to protect you even in the tribulation. Can you imagine going before the people of John's day and announcing to them, great news. I got some wonderfully encouraging news. You're going to love this. And the Christians who are now living, having lost their, their loved ones in martyrdom, have been beaten. And they say, what's the good news in the midst of all the problem? Well, the good news is this, Christian. You're not going to have to go through the tribulation. It's yet to come. And this stuff isn't the tribulation. It's yet in the future. Do you know if you were to take that message to about 12 to 15 countries around the world right now, you get laughed at. They'd say, future tribulation? If you want to have some interesting reading, get on the Internet and pull up persecution. 
modern-day persecution. Most of us would agree that James Dobson is a worthy source of valid information. He feeds a lot of information through the Christian community. He reports that from the best of their studies, at least, that in 1996 there were 160,000 martyrs for their faith in Christ. It is believed that there are more martyrs that have... uh, Uh, those that have lost their life in this century than the previous 19 combined. Someone is martyred approximately, on the average of every four minutes, approximately 400 per day. And the stories of crucifixion, rape, torture is beyond what you could imagine. Whether it be in Egypt or Sudan, China, Pakistan, Laos, North Korea, Vietnam can go on and on. Still going on today. I don't think it would hold much weight to their ears for us to say, good news, tribulations yet to come. We'll be gone when it arrives. They'd say, no way, no way. Well, what about the great tribulation found in Scripture? And here I'd like for you to turn to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to hit two birds with one stone in this one because not only will we understand this teaching that I'm offering, but I hate the fact that so many Christians are reading through their Bible, getting to Matthew 24, and they come to this chapter and they scratch their head and say, I have no clue what this is talking about. This is really weird. I don't follow. What I'd love to think is at least all of you that are here, from this time forward, you'll come to Matthew 24 and say, ah, this makes sense. In Matthew 24, verse 21, we read, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. This is what most would say, here is your seven-year tribulation. Now, we'll get to why seven years in the next point, but here, this is what they would say. This is the the tribulation we're talking about. Well, to understand a text, you always have to put it in its context. To do that, go to the beginning, read the, th- the, whole, the whole account. So we go back to verses 1 through 3, and this is what we read. This will be very insightful. Verse 1, and Jesus came out from the temple. Notice he's coming out of the temple there in Jerusalem and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Now, we don't know why they're pointing out the buildings that are part of the temple complex, but they're some way pointing out these buildings. Verse 2, And he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Now, kids, can you guess what all these things are being? Here here they are. The disciples are pointing out the buildings, temple buildings, and Jesus says, Can you not see what these things are? He's obviously talking about those buildings. And then he says, truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now, would you suggest from just reading that he's talking about these temple buildings, that they're going to be torn down in the future and not one stone will be left upon the other? So now we move to verse 3. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, keep in mind this is the very next verse, thinking the same thoughts, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, one, when will these things be? Now, we're in the context here of talking about the buildings. Wouldn't you assume he's saying, 
tell us when are these things? She talked about the, the building is going to be demolished and stones will be no longer stacked on top of each other like they are now. Well, when are these things going to happen that you're talking about, Jesus? And then, secondly, the next question. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, that's either a second question or it's two more questions. It's the only way you can look at it. And depending upon how you interpret that, you're going to decide, I believe in this particular paradigm of this first chart, or I'm going to believe the second. Let me illustrate or let me show, explain. When he says in that second question, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? I'm going to explain something that you that are in junior high and high school will probably understand. Your parents will not have a clue. In Greek language, there's a, a, a grammatic rule, the Granville-Sharp rule, that says if you have an article, now this is where I lose you adults, an article is like the word the, all right? If you have the, an article, followed by a noun, can you remember what a noun is? All right, a person, place, or thing, right? And it's followed by a conjunction. You remember what that is, maybe. Conjunction, yeah. It, we, let's use the conjunction and. And it's followed by another noun. Here's the rule. If you have one article in the Greek and two nouns, then it's referring to one and the same thing, just described in some fuller measure. If you wanted to talk about two things, then you insert another article here before the second noun. In this particular text, there is no second article. And it would certainly lead us to assume that he's saying the coming and the end as one event. Even to further that, the word in that's used here, this word in is teleos in the Greek language. And usually, if you just want to talk about the end, you use that word. But there is a prefix that is in the Greek, soon which means with. And interestingly, it says here, the coming and, there is no the, with the end. The coming of Christ with the end. Two different ways to say, look, all of this is taking place together. So either you believe it's the second coming. Here's one question here. The second coming. Lord, when is this going to take place? And, using the top chart, go over here to the judgment day, and the end. When does the end take place? And it becomes three questions. The stones, when do these buildings get knocked down? Secondly, when are you coming? And thirdly, when is your judgment or the end time? Or it's the second chart down here where it's saying, Lord, we've got a couple of questions. One, first you address these stones and the buildings being knocked down. When's that going to take place? And that's going to take place right in here. And I'm going to suggest 70 A.D. is what he's talking about. And then the second question he addresses in Matthew 24, when does this thing take place here? The very end, the rapture, second coming, and judgment. When's the end? And he answers that. Now, the book or the chapter 24 is really broken into three parts, three different thoughts as best I see it. Verses 4 through 14 is first Jesus giving a broad overview of this whole picture. Whichever chart you use, he's giving you a broad overview of the big, big picture. The second thing he addresses is in verses 15 through 28, 
And I suggest he's addressing the second question. When are these temple buildings going to be destroyed? And he's going to address the answer to that question. And then in verses 29 through 31, he's going to address the question, and when does this end take place? Answer that one. When is all of this going to take place? Now, if you look at the first segment, 4 through 14, no time to read it all, so I'm just going to touch on a few key words out of it. In verse 5, we read, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Verse 6, And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. The end of verse 6, but that's not yet the end. Verse 7, For nation will rise against nation. And then in verse 7, it says, There will be famines and earthquakes. Verse 8, though, says, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Now, the way we interpret this in modern America is, Ooh, look at all the wars. Look at all the rumors of wars. Wow, look at all the earthquakes. Well, keep in mind, they didn't have the equipment and the information systems to talk about how many earthquakes and wars and all were going on. But I bet in their day, they're going, could it be any worse? Look at all the wars that are taking place. And Jesus says, these are not the indicators that the end has come. We have made these the indicators that the end is here. He says, oh, no, it's just the beginning of birth pains. And only women that have had children can appreciate how much more is left if this is the beginning of birth pains, right? Then you scoot down to the last of this section, verse 14. It says, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations. Ah, and then the end shall come. He says, don't look at the wars and the famines and all this stuff to be your indicator of when the end comes. Why don't you look? Why don't you look at when the gospel has been preached to all the world? And that gets into debate in missiology. Many are saying, oh, well, we've just got a couple of years and every country, tribe, and tongue will now have the gospel, and there's reality to that. And it could mean, oh, now this means that he could come now any time. But I think that's a dangerous theology which says, well, we know this, he can't come now. Missiologists say it's another year, two at least. Maybe by the end of, the, of this year, they will hit all the tongues and tribes and nations and get the gospel at least to somebody in every tongue, tribe, people, and so forth. And then the Lord can come. And some are saying, well, at least he can't come tomorrow. I know that. But the authors of scriptures didn't think that way. They didn't think that way at all. In fact, an interesting verse is found in Colossians 1.23. Now, this written... 25 years, as most would assume, years after this event of Matthew 24. And the last of this verse, talking about the hope of the gospel, it says that you have heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Wow. He seemed to think that, hey, this has happened. What Jesus said, the end shall come, is when the gospel has been preached throughout the world and the apostle Paul says and that's happened now you would assume from that that the authors of scripture would be expecting that the end would take place any moment did they think that I suggest they did in fact listen to a few of these texts and their authors John in the epistle of 1st John 2 says children it is the last hour in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, this is a different author. Paul says, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have already come. Have come there means have already. 
Philippians 4, 5 says, and this is Paul again, the Lord is near. And he's not talking about he's a comforter, but his coming is near. And then in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, in these last days, he has spoken in his son. The author James in chapter 5, 8 says, for the coming of the Lord is at hand, meaning it's right here, it's right on us. Peter, in 1 Peter 1, 20 says, but... It has appeared in these last days for the sake of you. Last days. Peter in 1 Peter 4, 7 says, And the end of all things is at hand. Acts chapter 2, 14 through 17. You get down to 17. It says, And it shall be in the last day, God says, I will pour forth my spirit upon mankind. And he's arguing this has happened in Pentecost. It is the last days. Isn't it interesting? The authors of Scripture seem to be looking at the horizon of the future saying, we should expect Jesus any time now because it's, it's fulfilled. You know, the Word has gone out to the world, and we should expect Him any time. So I would suggest to you that that for, first portion is just simply an overview of the whole picture here. Jesus just putting it in the context. Now what He's going to do is He's going to specifically address that first question. And here's what he says in Matthew 24. Again, we'll just skim through the passage. Beginning in verse 15, it says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation. Now, most all would agree that abomination of desolation, now that's talking about the great tribulation right there. The abomination, and I believe it is, the abomination of desolation. The question is, what is this abomination of desolation I'll suggest he's just talking about this event in 70 A.D. where Titus comes in with his armies of Rome and destroys Jerusalem. The temple is devastated, not one stone left upon the other. And it's exactly what he's describing is going to happen here by way of prophecy. Verse 16, And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop, verse 17, not go down and get the things that are in the house. Verse 18, let him who is in the field not turn back and get his cloak. 19, but woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babies in those days. Verse 20, but pray that your flight may not be in winter. The Jordan River would be high then. You've got to cross it. Nor on the Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation. Now, going down, it says, and there will be rumors of you know, different uh, false Christs and false prophets and all that. But 28 says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. History is recorded outside of Scripture that this is exactly what happened in 70 A.D. You would have to read Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian who wrote and lived at this same time, was actually under the Roman army as a Jewish person, interestingly enough, and gives the account that if you go in the university systems today, Flavius Josephus is heralded as a great, credible historian. You know what he says? It was a slaughter of the Jewish people. And the Christians had been forewarned even through this prophecy, and when they saw the armies gathering, then they fled. They didn't even take time. They knew this means it's worse than we can imagine. Get out now. And they're the ones who had their lives spared. And he talks about the vultures and all that. I mean, it's identical storyline here from history. But what really is intriguing is looking at its parallel account in Luke, the 21st chapter. And it's basically given us the same story, the same description. 
But it adds this little note in verse 20 of chapter 21. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. It's identifying the desolation having to do with the armies. So what you have to do is assume, well, this wasn't really it in 70 A.D. that Jesus was talking about. Though there were armies and though there were vultures eating the dead and though there was a massacre and though the buildings were dropped and none of the stones were left upon the other, that's not what's being referred here. It's of this great tribulation that's coming in the future of which we will be raptured away and won't have to go through it. That's what's being described. And I read that and I say, how would you do that? You know what that would be like? It would be like, kids, listen to this one, it would be like an informant. You know what an informant is? Somebody who's working for their government and they're, they're kind of doing some secret spy work, you know, and they're told now there's going to be another informant that's going to come and give you some information that you've got to have. And this is top secret stuff that this guy is going to carry to you. And so be careful because there could be some imitations, you know, people trying to make you think they're informants, but we've got it all worked out where you will know it's the right one. And you go, how? How will we know? Well, we're going to dye his hair blue. So he'll have blue hair. He's going to have a polka-dotted shirt on, and he's going to have plaid pants on. He's only got one arm. And when he comes up to you and he says, boogaboo, then you know it's the right guy. So a guy walks up to you, comes along, and he looks around, and he says, uh, boogaboo. And you look at him. He's got blue hair, polka-dotted shirt, plaid pants, got one arm. Can you imagine saying, I wonder if this is the right informant. <laughs> I wonder if there's another blue-headed, one-armed, crazy dresser who says boogaboo that may be coming next. Maybe this is really not the right guy. You go, no, this is the right guy. I mean, it's too clear. You would accept it, I do believe, unless you had a plan that had to be fulfilled that was different in your mind than what I think we're finding here in Scripture. Again, you have to study to find out what you believe. The last section is in verse 29 through 31. This, I believe, is the answer to that last question, saying, and Lord, also, when does all this take place? You're coming at the, with the end of the age. When will that take place? And I will suggest here that he's answering that question, verses 29 through 31, where it says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. At the end of that verse, it says, The Son of Man coming on the clouds in the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect. It sounds to me he's talking about these things we discussed week one called rapture, second coming, and judgment. And he's simply saying, here's what you can expect to happen when that takes place. Now, there are those who are holding of this perspective down here who are called preterists, and I don't want to confuse you, but they would take these last verses and say, no, this is a further spiritual description of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and maybe there's some warrant to that. It just doesn't seem so to me, but again, it's just a variation of this particular perspective. I think Jesus was simply answering these two questions right at this point, and that's the end of 24. There's one other chapter, and that's Revelation 7. There we're going to see the use of the Great Tribulation as well. This is a parenthesis in the storyline of Revelation for a few moments of comforting the church. And in verses 9 through 17, we see the glory of the saints in heaven. And so in verse 9 we read of Revelation 7, And after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude 
which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Now, kids, if you were to just read that, where would you think, what would you think is being described there? I bet you say heaven. Sounds like heaven to me. I mean, people from all tongues and tribes and nations and all before the Lamb and, and so forth and so on and, and uh, thrones, great multitude, sure sounds like that. I think you're right. Verse 11 says, and all the angels will be standing around the throne. That sounds like heaven. And then you come down to verse 13 and it says, and one of the elders answered saying to me, these who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and from where have they come? And I said to him, my Lord, you know, and he said to me, right, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. That's a very important term there, come out. In the Greek, it's present, a present participle. And what that's saying, and continues to come out. I would suggest that it's the viewpoint from heaven of people that are coming into the heavenly host who are leaving the earth as God's people. And it's a constant thing. It's not over just one period, but from every tongue, tribe, and nation. This is talking about the history of the church. This is the church at large gathered. Who is this church? It's those who've come out of the tribulation. Not a seven-year period, but the whole church. And intriguingly enough, the terms washed and made white are in the aorist tense, which means once and for all. So he specifically uses this to say they are still coming out. It's a, it's a matter of coming out of the tribulation. So I don't think we can use that term there in chapter 7 to warrant that it was a unique seven-year period of tribulation. Pretty much takes care of the passages, I think, that would be used to push toward this future tribulation instead of a present one. You be the judge. Is it future? If you believe it is, find Scripture that supports it. Maybe you'll find it, but I don't see that it would be future. I see that it's present. It's right now. But let's move to the second. Is it a seven-year tribulation? as opposed to future or present being a different span of time. Well, it's either a seven-year or it's the whole time from the cross till the last events as we have described them. My question again would be to the student who says, I believe that it is a seven-year tribulation. I would say, where in Scripture do you find seven-year tribulation? That does not mean that it cannot exist because the term seven years and tribulation is nowhere found in Scripture. But it might be an, an, a marking. There are things that I believe in Scripture that you don't find the specific wording for, but there's plenty of, of text to support it. So I'd say, or what other text supports it's a seven-year? If you want to find the answer to that question, those who believe in a seven-year, you have to go to one text. And that text is Daniel chapter 9. It is one of the most complicated and difficult texts of all the Bible, and I'm going to spare you today. We're not going to try to go through it. I'm only going to look at one verse to just give you the big picture. The way that a seven-year period is brought into existence is by doing calculations out of this complicated, difficult passage. It talks about, and most of you won't even understand this, it's a prophecy of, of 70, 70 weeks. And a week is a week of years, and so you put out all these years. And, and there's 69 weeks, and then there's a 70th week. And this is talking about the whole story of the church age, tribulation millennium, as I would see it. But if you're going to take this top chart perspective, and you want to believe in a seven-year tribulation, and for this whole thing to work out, you have to insert, with no reason in the text, 
a 2,000-year gap between the 69 and the 70th week. Now, my question is, on what authority or basis can we say, oh, yeah, there must be a 2,000-year gap here between this and that? I, I think we've, we've mishandled Scripture when we do that without warrant or reason to do so. There are two things that are said in verse 27 that are very important. In verse 27, it's going to talk about a he, some he, whoever he is, and he's going to do two things. Uh, he is going to establish a covenant with the many, and he's going to cut off sacrifices in the middle of the week, which would be three and a half years. And when you hear three and a half years, you begin to think of the life and ministry of Jesus. Anybody know how long the life and ministry of Jesus was? Three and a half years. It would certainly lead me to think that the he is talking about the Messiah. There's another good reason to believe he's talking about the he of the Messiah is because verse 26 refers to the Messiah. That's the person in discussion. And verse 27 just refers to the pronoun he. General rule of, of good language is that you go back to the one being referred to and take the he and say that applies to, to that person. If you want to make this to be the seven-year period and all of this, this whole picture of the top chart, you have to make he into the Antichrist. I suggest that he is the Christ who establishes covenant with the many. That's exactly what we read in Scripture that he does. And is, this, is the sacrifice cut off at three and a half years? Yes, it is. At the end of his life, no more shedding of blood for sin. I think it's simply a prophecy of Christ, but this has to become the prophecy of another called the Antichrist. And by the way, it's having to believe that that can produce the beliefs that so many have heard and probably assumed is going to happen, and that is that, that there's going to be a rebuilding of the temple before Christ comes again. I bet if I ask a raise of hands, it'd be amazing how many people have heard, oh, yeah, there'll be a rebuilding of the temple. Where do we get that in Scripture? Well, it's because the sacrifices have been cut off, obviously, by the Antichrist, and therefore, it's got to be reestablished again till we can then see this take place. It also leads to the belief that there must be an Antichrist because this individual, whoever it is, cuts off the sacrifices at that point. I think we would be somewhat hard-pressed to find seven years outside of doing some, some calculations out of this text to ever believe that there would be a seven-year Tribulation. The third and final point is the rise of a future Antichrist. Is there to be an individual, satanically empowered Antichrist that arises? Again, I would ask the student who takes an opposite position, I would say, would you show me where in Scripture it talks about an Antichrist? Just show me in Scripture any passage that talks about it. Now, first, you will not find Antichrist anywhere anywhere in the book of Revelation. You would think if there's a major character coming in to the story of the last days, it would be in the book of Revelation, but it's not. Not by that name, at least, by Antichrist. And by the way, Antichrist, the word ante in the Greek, the prefix there, anti, can mean against. But you know how it's most often used? To mean in the place of. What we tend to think is this antichrist is someone standing up against Christ, and certainly he, he would be if there were such a single individual. But I think we're talking about in place of Christ. 
And we're going to see that voluminously around us. Let's read the places in Scripture we do see the word Antichrist and see what do we learn from it. It happens to be that John is the author that introduces us to Antichrist. And it is in chapter 2, verse 18 of 1 John, the first time we read it. From him he says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know it's the last hour. He didn't think in the singular. He thought in the plural. You come down to verse 22 of chapter 2, and it says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. And in the same book, teaching on the same subject, chapter 4, verse 3, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist. And then he goes on, Of which you have heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world. Whatever Antichrist was, he believed it was there then. And I would suggest that this week in Littleton, Colorado, that the Antichrist was right there in that school. And that's why you have what you have. And to believe that there's yet one to come, not here yet, the Antichrist is yet to come, I think what a marvelous strategy of Satan. Hey, kids, think about it this way. Can you imagine if somebody came to you who was a thief? Now, you didn't know it, but it's, it, I mean, he's a really bad thief. And he, and he persuades you and your family. He says, by the way, did you know there's only one thief in all of Georgia? There's only one thief, and i got great news for you. That one thief is in San Diego for a three-month thief convention and is not going to be back till the end of three months. And so, by the way, don't worry with taking the time to lock your house because the only thief that exists isn't even here, can't be here for several months, so don't worry. Boy, would he have a heyday on that naivety, right? Likewise, so many of us think, well, whew, good news, the Antichrist isn't here yet. Oh, I say be prepared. He is here. In so many multiple fashions, any that's instead of Christ. Oh, yeah, 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 I, I know about Christ, but, but I think what really is important is that you truly believe there's the spirit of Antichrist, anything other than Christ. Well, in conclusion, I suggest that we are in the tribulation, that we have Antichrists all around us, and that Christ could come back at any time. Scripture's authors believe that Christ would return at any time and they weren't thinking that an antichrist had to arise first. They weren't thinking that there's first got to be a seven-year tribulation preceded by a rapture. They didn't believe that the temple had to be destroyed and rebuilt first. They just believed he's coming any time. And so, I said it every week of these three, I close with this. Is this a major or a minor? Please tell me if you've been here. Major or minor? It is a minor. Are minors like this important? Yes, they are. Don't say, oh, it doesn't matter. It's a minor. Oh, it is a very important issue, but it is a minor. The teaching of this modern-day perspective introduces a very dangerous doctrine of a second-chance theology. How many people have you ever heard? Some of you have heard this. Well, if he does come back in the rapture, I got seven years. I'll take him then. 
Once I see he's real, he comes back, I'll take him then. There's no second chance theology in Scripture that I see, nothing of the sort. This modern perspective leaves many of us with a very naive conclusion that we have an antichrist to come, and we don't have to worry that he's here yet, because obviously we would know if he were. And I think it leaves us with a false hope of avoiding the tribulation, which will lead many of us perhaps one day to great disillusionment, saying, I thought the Bible said we shouldn't be in tribulation, and we are. Very important doctrines. They help us. My prayer would be, every believer here, study, show yourself approved. It may well be that the teaching that I hold is not accurate. You study, but be aware there is not just this modern Western perspective that has prevailed. For 1,800 years, there's been a different perspective that has prevailed. It may well be the biblical perspective. And if it is the truth, remember, it is the truth that sets you free. The gospel of Christ is the answer for all of us. Giving him our unrighteousness, he gives us his righteousness. It's because of the cross that this is all important. Because either he is the Savior, taking our sin, or he's not. And if he is, we want to understand all of his ways. It will profoundly impact the way we live as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we conclude these ten keys now, we pray that we might be so quick to hold that which we see to be truth. I pray no one, again, no one would believe this because their pastor says so. But again, Father, my prayer, please let no one hold a doctrine simply because they find it in the populace. They find it in persuasive novels, but only because they find it in your word, the truth. Father, we pray that we might be faithful to you till the end. We pray as we prepare now to study the book of Revelation that we might not only hear, might not only heed, but would receive the promised blessing for doing so. We pray this in the matchless name of Christ our Savior. Amen.